RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. It staggers me that people still today say, well, no, I don't really understand technology. Or I'm, I'm, they, they, they still act like it's almost, at times, I'm proud of the fact that I don't understand how technology works. That is terrible. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC, and in each episode I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. This week we have James Platt, and we're going to discuss the four questions that insurers should ask themselves when considering how to deploy digital technology. James has had three separate careers. That's right, not one, not two, but three separate careers. For 11 years, he was an officer in the British Army, or more specifically, a captain in the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers. And then for 14 years, he was a partner in the Boston Consulting Group, a firm of management consultants. But for the last nine years, he has been with Aon, in a number of roles, including Global Chief Operating Officer and Chief Digital Officer, but most recently as an advisor. He writes and speaks widely about the practical deployment of digital technology, which has led him to conclude that every company needs to be able to answer four questions for the digital age, which is what we're going to discuss today. So James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So when you left the army, um, you joined a management consultancy, but, but g- given that you were a hearted engineer, why did you do that? And then kind of, why did you move from there to Aon? I, I love the army. I, uh, I joined at 16, Peter went to an army college and thought it was going to be a bit like the Boy Scouts. <laughs> uh, it wasn't, it turned out like the Boy Scouts, but after a few years, I think I, I just got to a point where the army's wonderful when you're in the field. Uh-huh. And then suddenly I thought, well, the next 10 years, when you get to about 30, the next 10 years are much more about being behind a desk. I thought if I was going to be behind a desk, why not do it somewhere else? Uh-huh. And so I, I was in Kosovo and uh, I was looking after information systems though, and then just thought I'd, I'd leave. And I applied to a newspaper advert wow. uh, to join BCG. And then the move to Aon, that was a sort of a, a natural progression, I suppose, in some ways. Well, I got into consulting around data and analytics. I got into consulting around insurance, and Aon was my client. Right, okay. So I spent four years uh, talking to Aon, and I, I love the team. So when they said, come and join, I said, yeah, no, I'd love to. Brilliant. And um, at Aon, you were uh, Chief Operating Officer and uh, Chief Digital Officer, and kind of I probably need, in truth, I need to do a specific episodes on, on both of those roles at some point. But this is not that episode because um, I want us to discuss something kind of far more specific. Uh, the four questions that insurers should ask themselves when considering how to deploy digital technology. So we're discussing the deployment of, of digital technology. Uh, so ultimately, this is a very kind of practical discussion rather than sort of a high level theoretical one about digital transformation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, uh, I mean, you've already touched upon this. Could you talk us through, in effect, how you became an expert in this area? So my last job in the Army, I got put into something called Logistic Information Systems Agency. And this was in the late 90s, trying to implement digital systems in the military. And it really intrigued me. 
how do you actually do that? I then joined BCG and ended up doing e this thing called e-commerce, which at the time I hadn't got a clue what it was. I remember asking somebody, what's e-commerce? And so I, I sort of got into technology and then ended up, uh, BCG then said, would you set up our data analytics practice? So I started doing that and working with a number of firms. So I had this journey, which was serendipitous. And I made a lot of mistakes, and I guess that got me to where I am today. And uh, according to Wikipedia, which is my source of all information, uh, the, the digital revolution started in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, but in reality, our experience of it, it, it gathered pace in the 1980s and 1990s. But, uh, but since then, I mean, the growth has been astonishing, exponential. So... I mean, how do you break down the, the developments in, in digital technology over the last 30 or so years? So, Peter, if you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a tangent for a moment. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go back to the 1950s. Ooh, okay. And there's this, um, there's this amazing, so this is a total tangent, but there's, a, there's this amazing uh, BBC uh, set of podcasts. So, obviously, similar to your own, <laughs> uh, which are... I'll take that as a compliment. Which, which, <laughs> yeah. Which are looking at the start of computing. And so, Peter, when do you think the first commercial computer that business used was created? And who do you think created it? Well, I, I would guess I would guess IBM. Uh -huh. um, and I would guess 1958. So not bad on the date, but a long way on who. So the first, well, and I only learned this recently, the world's first commercial computer 1951. Oh, okay. Set up by Lions Tea Shops in the UK. <laughs> That's brilliant. I mean, amazing, right? Amazing. So they they literally realised, and they took the, the the first ever computer was sort of created. A few of them created one by Cambridge University. They took it, they created their own version of it, and they used it to tally up all their tea room tills and things and then and then everybody started using that was the world's first com commercial computer Amazing. wow that's a, that's extraordinary uh, so I, I was i was quite shocked and and uh, not what i expected either uh, and also longer the further ago than you'd thought 1958 was pretty good i asked most people and they think the 60s but the more recently look we've been through this period of the desktop age in uh really from the 90s and yeah, that was my original experience through the internet age in the 2000s. Mobile came in in the 2010s. We're now in maybe what we call the digital age. I suspect we'll be in what we might call the intelligence age as we get into the 2030s. But what's interesting is the technology always seems to be 10 years ahead of us using it. And those ages I talk about are when we're using the technology. Uh. So if we think about AI now, that's why I talk about the intelligence age coming forward. I suspect in 10 years, we'll be really getting value from. And well, it's a, it's a question with a fairly obvious answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway, which is why is it important for insurers to get this kind of continuing transition to digital and, as you say, intelligent digital? Why is it important for them to get this right? So, Peter, we're an industry, and if I'm tough on us, we burn almost half of the money we're given in costs and other, and, and obviously profit and other things. We only ever give half back to our clients. So they give us a pound or a dollar and we give them 50p or 50 cents. It doesn't sound very efficient. In our large commercial world, it can take us over six months to get an invoice out. So there's a massive opportunity for us if we can get this stuff to work. And imagine we actually 
do, let's say we take 25 percentage points out of combined ratio for efficiency. Imagine how much more insurance products we could create, how more innovative we could be, and how that would underpin not just the insurance industry, but industry as a whole. And how, you know, if, you can, if you can take more risk, you can take more investment, then everybody grows. So for me, this is critical to be both cost efficient and to be more innovative. And I say, not for ourselves, it's not a selfish story, but actually for the economy as a whole. So I mean, you've already used the word disruptive. Um, and uh, disruption is a word that kind of crops up regularly kind of in this context. And I have to confess that I have a problem with that word um, because it, it just seems to me that it's kind of horribly abused and, and overused and extended to things which maybe you shouldn't apply to. And you know, On the one hand, you have kind of genuinely disruptive or transformational changes such as you know, the move from film photography uh, to digital photography. Um, kind of, which of course led to the demise of Kodak, which is one of the you know the, the common examples that is used. Um, but it's also used for much kind of lesser events, which seem to me to be nothing more than incremental progress. So, I mean, how do you define disruption and and you know the extent of disruption? It's interesting, Peter, and actually, maybe I mean there are clearly two types. And there's a great book that if anybody gets a chance to read, and many many people listening, I'm sure, will have read, called The Innovator's Dilemma by a guy called Clay Christensen. And uh, he talks about two types of disruption. He talks about evolutionary disruption or evolutionary change and revolutionary. Okay. And it turns out that large organizations in general are quite good at evolutionary and in general are terrible at revolutionary. And the core of his book is that the reason for that is you have to almost destroy your own business model to get revolutionary disruption. Yeah. And to begin with, you're worse, i.e. if you make the first steps you tend to get worse before you get better. And it's very, very hard to go through that sort of U-typed curve for most large organizations. But for me, true disruption is when you're creating things like new models, things like Airbnb and what they've done. Uh, that's maybe true disruption, but it, but it can, doesn't have to be that significant. It can still be true disruption. All Amazon done is change distribution. What have Uber done? They've changed functionality quite a lot, made it a lot nicer for people to use. But is it still a taxi? It's still a taxi whether it's new experiences like Spotify or maybe more complete new products like drones. But, but something has changed, and something has changed significantly. That, to me, is really disruption. But I wouldn't underestimate evolutionary disruption. It's what we're good at as large organizations making change. I think that's highly valuable too. And um, to be honest, I'm sure there's kind of a lot more we could discuss by, by way of introduction, but... Um, we do need to give uh, enough time to answer you know, the four questions that is the, the title of this podcast. And these four questions are, are, are based on a talk that y you've recently given. And the first of those four questions is, is the required outcome clear? Now, what do you mean by that? So the first of those you say is outcome. And it, if, if you do a large transformational product in any organization, and you go and ask five different leaders, why? What are you trying to achieve? So why are you doing this and what are you trying to achieve? What's your objective? I would say nine times out of 10, nobody can give the same answer. Everybody gives you a different answer. So how can, that, how can you get to the, the, the right outcome if you don't have the same objective? And how, I guess a follow-up question to that is, is, have you got an example to sort of bring, a, bring that to life as, as, a, as a statement? It's hard to be very, very specific, Peter, in a way that everybody will sort of understand the content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe, maybe, actually, maybe the best analog is a building project. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, what? what's the outcome? Isn't just building the building. It's the functionality of the building. What, what functionality are you trying to create? Is this a practical space? Is this a space that you want to be beautiful to look at? What's the trade-off between those? You know, the same thing in our world would be, are you trying to reduce costs from this program? Are you trying to improve service? What, what do you really understand what the outcome is going to be? Because you are going to make a set of trade-offs to get to that outcome. And so if it's really simple, it's purely cost reduction, that's great. Then every decision you make needs to be aligned against cost reduction. But the reality, as I say, is that it's normally going to be more complex than that. Hey, I want to improve service and I want to reduce costs. And I want to do that across free countries or free areas. And these other things are important. How you get that described and how you get people to understand so that then when the team is making decisions, they can make the right trade-offs is utterly critical. So I've thought of an example from, from the legal world because you know lots of law firms will have digital software to, to capture time. So in the good old days, you'd fill in a paper form and with a pen and send it off to someone who, who had input it. Whereas now we have systems where you press buttons and, and that's how you record time. So I, th I think what you're saying is if, if someone is introducing a system to record time, you don't just do it to record time. It might be that the, the motivation for that is to save time for associates, or it might be to increase the amount of time that is overall captured to make it more accurate, or it might be to make everything more transparent for clients. Um, but, but until you know the real reason why you are introducing digital time recording systems, you will struggle to get it right. Is, 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 that, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. So the ones that I really like, and if you go into a lot of the new, more digital ways of doing things, you go to things like, take one of our processes. I want the outcome of this is to reduce our claims process from three months to three seconds. Now, if it's even better if you put an in order that at the end of it. Exactly. It's to reduce it from three months to three seconds in order to improve customer experience or yeah. in order to reduce cost or whatever it might be. Because then you've got really what the metric that you're trying to focus on and you've also got what the outcome that you're trying to create. And those two things together work really nicely. So, I, I mean, the, the fascinating thing as well is if you know what, what specifically you're aiming for, you can then measure it after it's been implemented and therefore you know whether you've achieved what you're aiming to achieve. Because if you don't know what you're aiming to achieve, you can't measure it afterwards and you don't actually know whether you've achieved anything. And, and Peter, I say, and, and measure it as you're implementing. Yeah. Because I think if we're talking here, programs, and, and any significant technology deployment is not going to be the work of a few weeks, right? It's going to be the work of at least months, possibly years. So you need to measure it as you go along. And you need to know that you're heading in the right direction. Uh, so, so that's the first question. Um, is the required outcome clear? Uh, the second of your four questions is, uh, is the potential of the technology fully understood? So talk us through that. I see this time and time again, that people have views on technology deployments, but have never taken the time to actually try it out. Just one small example. If you take that more broadly, Often people don't appreciate what technology can do. Another example, and you talked about one of the, the talks I gave recently, is to a group of claims professionals. Great people. I mean, phenomenal. And we were talking about generative AI, chat GPT. 
Yeah. I was staggered how few in that room had really played with it. And the point is, if you're a claims professional, I'm picking on claims unfairly, you could say if you're an underwriter, if you're a broker, you have to understand technology at a level where you can think about the implications for your role and your job. Yeah. And I don't think we do. The reality is we all have to understand how it can change things and why it will change it. And when we're doing a deployment, we need to be able to tell the story because we've got to convince others to change. And if you can't tell the story, how do you convince your teams? And that failure I see all the time. Uh, is our difficulty in understanding the potential of technology, um, is that largely or at least partly due to the fact that there are always at least two levels to the potential of technology? There's the, there's the obvious potential, which is it, it is intended to change something and it changes that something, whatever that something may be. But then there's, then there's the, the second level, which is all it changes behavior, it changes human behavior, and therefore it changes human relationships and, and all the consequences that go with that. And you know, obviously the, the, the example that I'm thinking of is, is social media, which on a superficial level just allows people to contact, but has had all sorts of you know, the creation of bubbles and kind of silos and echo chambers and, and things like that, which were not initially anticipated. So, so, so the reality is even someone who, who's familiar with the technology will struggle to work out what the potential of that technology actually is. I think that's, I think that's right. And I think that you know, you're describing sort of second order technology effects. Yes. I, I, I would probably push that in most organizations, people don't really understand the benefits and how technology is going to change, even at the first order. Oh, okay. So what do I mean by that? I mean, how a system is going to change people's roles and why that's beneficial. Technology changes incredibly hard. We talk about digital systems. People actually hate them. I mean, it sounds stupid. People, they like social media because of the benefits it gives. People in general hate putting data into systems, literally hate it. And therefore, there is a big barrier, particularly in our industry, where, to be honest, we have a lot of very skilled, very knowledgeable people that really not only hate it, but can find other things to do. So how do you get over those barriers? One of the really important ways of getting over it is they need to understand the benefit for them. Yeah. And once you get over that, then I think you can start to, people are willing to put in the pain. But... Uh... Okay, so, so that's questions one and two. Um, is the required outcome clear? And uh, is the potential of the technology fully understood? Um, the third question, and I think this is a fascinating one, is, is there real commitment? Um, and I think it's fascinating because, you know, we're talking about the, the deployment of technology, which is potentially costing thousands of pounds, and companies are, are investing thousands of pounds you would assume that their real commitment would just be a, you know, a, an assumption. So why is that a question, in your opinion? Real commitment is slightly different from just commitment. I mean, you know, what do I mean by that? And that sounds silly. A real commitment is, and again, we talk about, there's a lot of cliches in this world, you know, willing to fail fast. You, I mean, this is a really interesting question. But have you ever met a large organization that's really willing to fail fast? And have you ever met a large organization that's willing to fail. I've, I've met a few who are very good at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, 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 but we, I had a, the founder of, the founder of Cobble when it joined and he said, 
it's clearly very difficult for large organizations to make decisions, but it's even harder for them to make different decisions once they've made one and to change it. I thought that was quite, that was quite interesting. Yes. Technology deployment requires continual trade-offs, adjustments. It, it, it does, because you learn as you go. It's not a one-off thing, particularly over a long period of time. The team has got to be given the rights to be able to make these changes. It's got to be empowered. But broadly, um, the real key to commitment is, are you willing to make the changes you need to use a new technology? Uh, and inherently, people like the idea, hey, I could make your processes better uh, if you build this new technology. Great. Love that. But then you go, well, and you're going to have to change how you operate. You're going to have to put some data in. You're going to lose these people. Your role's going to change. And the second, going back to what we said before, the second it involves putting data into systems, total, total pushback, suddenly it's too hard. And, and the system doesn't work in isolation. It works in collaboration with the people using the system. So... And you say that there's this superficial commitment, which is, here's the money, get off, put it in. But, but then, you know, the, the, the real commitment that you're talking about, there's the actually giving power to the people who, on the ground, who need to make decisions. There's the making sure that the commitment is not just for a six-month period and then, you know, some new shiny toy comes along and, and replaces it as a priority. And enforcement as well. I think in your, in your talk you mentioned enforcement. Kind of, but what do you mean by that? Yeah, I guess what I mean in commitment is I, I think I mean you can sort of get change by absolutely making it impossible for people to take a different route, and that's one quite effective way of getting things to change. There is no other option. The reality is, in most organisations, at least in insurance, there is often quite a lot of options and there's optionality. So for me, commitment is more around the leaders in the teams that have to change being committed. Because if, if everybody in a leadership role is committed to the outcome, they need to understand the outcome. They understand why this is positive. And then they're committed to making the changes. You know, you are, you are much, much, it's, it's, it's obvious. I mean, Peter, I'm saying, no, by the way, all of it we're talking about, I think is entirely obvious. <laughs> the interesting thing for me, when I look back over everything that I've done over the last, you know, 10 years, why did I make so many silly mistakes? Why didn't I do this? I mean, so it's, it's uh, yes, it's obvious. I guess by writing it down, what I'm trying to do is force us to take those steps. The fourth of your, your four questions is, is the deployment capability in place? Now, but what do you mean by that? So some of this is, it is really obvious. I mean, do you have the right expertise? Uh, and, and not just do you have the right expertise, but... Again, it comes back to my stakeholder structures. Are the experts actually able to make the decisions and do you trust them to make the decisions? But there's another part of it in terms of deployment capability, and it's how you integrate the teams and how you bring them together. And it's the technology don't always understand the business. The business don't understand the technology. So how do you integrate those teams? And a good question to ask, and it's very simple questions is, do you have a standard if you're running some form of agile methodology? Is everybody going to it or just a technology team? And again, that sounds stupid and it's obvious, but nine times out of 10, you find it's just a technology team and you have the technology teams running their thing and the business process running over here and they hardly meet. So the deployment capability for me is how do you integrate that together in a meaningful way that so you've got the experts both on the business and, and technology side. And I, I say, I feel almost embarrassed <laughs> talking about it like this, but we make those mistakes every day. 
So it's it, it, on both sides of it, it's bringing people up to a, a, a consistent level of knowledge. So they, basically, they can understand and anticipate the problems that the other side is going to experience. Yeah, and, and accepting that everyone has different expertise and they're all part of the team and that they're working together. Yeah. We start go back to what I was saying earlier, which is we still sort of have a throw over the wall mentality of technology deployment in many cases, where we're imagining that somehow the technology people do some stuff and bring it back. No, no, we work together. So if you imagine almost going back to the four questions, you've got a clear outcome you can make trade-offs. Yeah. You understand, and everybody involved understands why we're doing this, how it's going to have an outcome, which is really the understanding point. There's true commitment against that outcome, which you've built off the understanding. And then lastly, you have a coherent team working together against it, both from the business and technology side with the right number of expertise. If you get all those things right, you're pretty much going to succeed. Now, you may not deliver exactly what you thought you were going to, but you'll certainly deliver against the objective that you set at the beginning. Okay. Um, so in your opinion, kind of which of your four questions is the one that is most commonly ignored? And why do you think that is? I think whether the technology is and the impact of the technology is truly understood. I really feel that in many cases, if you are a professional in a particular area, you almost like technology is not for me. It staggers me that people still today say, well, no, I don't really understand technology. Or I, I, they, they, they still act like it's almost at times, I'm proud of the fact that I don't understand how technology works. I'm proud. That is terrible. How do you get educated around digital technology? I mean, do you, do you understand <laughs> how blockchain works, why it might be useful? You know, if you really want to get down to detail, you know, how it's going to change your world. Uh. Absolutely with things like generative AI. I mean, if you went back to October last year and I talked to you about generative AI and chat GPT, Peter, you wouldn't have a clue, right? I would not have had a clue, no. And I, I, I promise you, I mean, nobody really would. I mean, this is one of the things that's been building and came out in a real disruptive way. But once it did come out, do, you, do people understand? Do they understand how models are trained, what it can do, what it can't do? Because any leader in any role must understand the technologies and how they change. It's a little bit like saying to a technologist, you shouldn't understand how insurance works. They go, you, you know, you, in technology, we go, I need to understand how insurance works so I can work out how to deploy the technology. Well, it works the other way around. Yes. If you're an industry expert, you need to understand technology so that you can understand how it can change your roles two ways. Absolutely. So that one to me is the most important. And, you know, one simple thing to do is, as I say, if you're ever going to talk about a technology deployment, make sure everybody's actually spent time looking at the technologies, looking at similar ones, looking at other deployments, and really does understand how it's going to operate. And if you had to choose one of the four questions and discard the other three, which one would you choose? Or maybe you've just answered that. Well, no, funnily enough, commitment. Commitment, and the reason... Peter, is if you think about the objective and the understanding and the deployment capability, none of them are easy, but all of them are fixable. Trading deep-seated commitment to change across an organization, it either happens or it, or it doesn't. There's no, there's no fix. It's either there or it's not there. I mean real commitment all the way down, all the way through. Commitment of the senior team and commitment of, if you like, the local leaders. Both are incredibly important. So I think that one is the one you just can't get around. It's either there or it's not there. And to conclude, James, what word of wisdom from your years of experience would you pass on to the next generation 
um, interested in insurance? Years and years ago, actually when I joined BCG, I had a piece of training. Uh, it's from a guy called Eve Moreau. It's about the only training leader I can ever remember remembering. Wow. <laughs> you know, so, and, I, and he told an amazing story about a French hairdressing salon, and they're trying to sell shampoo in Oh. Trying to sell shampoo in the hairdressing salon, and they can't work out why the people that are shampooing can't sell shampoo. And the reason is that you don't understand their objectives. That a hairdressing shampooist wants to be a hairdresser. And you can't sell shampoo if you're a shampooist because you won't talk to clients because a hairdresser wants to build up a client base and they won't let the shampooist talk to them. And it turns out it's the hairdressers that actually point the next hairdresser from the shampooists. So you have this weird dynamic of objectives in a French hairdressing salon from the 1980s. Same thing in our industry. If you can understand what somebody's objective is personally, you can normally work out how they'll behave. And I, I think that that is a way of unlocking a lot of change in organization. Thank you, James. That was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.